0: Welcome everyone to the Weekly Spotlight from Diversity and Apps. My name is Kabir Seth. If you're listening in the U.S., I hope you're enjoying your holiday weekend. Um, I know I've been complaining about the lack of summer for the last couple of weeks in New York, but it showed up on Friday, and even on Saturday, they were absolute scorchers, which was fine with me. I'm happy to see summer's here. I hope it stays here. Um, if this is your first time joining us on the weekly spotlight, Diversity in Apps is a grassroots coalition. We're made up of researchers, producers, and educators, and of course, parents. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. And one of the ways we do that is through our weekly newsletter which comes out every Sunday. We have four to five articles in there. And what we do on this podcast is really highlight a couple of them, um, try to entice you to go out and read them and share them with like-minded folks. Um, Another segment that we have on the show is really where we bring on folks from the children's industry. They, uh, They come on to talk about their research. They come on to talk about the work that they're doing. Um, big companies, small companies, established, etc. Um, and this week, unfortunately, with the holiday uh, weekend, we don't have uh, we don't have a guest. But I hope we I hope to have someone uh, next week for sure. Um, before I get to one announcement that I have in the articles, I did want to encourage any of you listening, if you are a regular listener, if you enjoy the show, um, please go to iTunes and and leave a review. Um, I'd really appreciate it. Um, it's just a way to sort of get feedback on uh, on the show and things that um, that I could be doing better, things that you'd like to see, um, what you like, what you don't like, etc. All right. So our one announcement for the week is actually related to some of the work we've been doing at Diversity in Apps. Um, as many of you know, I've talked about it. Um, on the show and also put it in the newsletter of course is for the past few months we've been creating a set of guidelines for creators and producers and really teams of creative people who, um, who create children's media and the set of guidelines is is focused on how to create more diverse and inclusive content and this week um, we actually released a video that, um, that goes a little bit more into what our plans are and um, the video is around what we're calling the diversity and inclusive growth toolkit, um, the DIG toolkit for short and really what it's, what it's going to do is identify about a dozen criteria or so that um, really serve as milestones for creative teams um, in the product development process so that they can make uh, intentional choices that can result in the creation of more inclusive, diverse and equitable equitable children's digital products, which of course is our overall mission. And um, this is something like I said that we've been working on probably since the beginning of of the year, um, coming up with what that criteria is um, through the through the pr- product development process and, um, where the DIG comes from, you know, obviously besides the acronym, is really this idea of, of what we thought of creating, when we think of creating a children's products, there's a ton of steps that go into it, a ton of milestones like we talked about, and that's sort of like when you're creating a garden, there's a lot that goes into making a, a garden beautiful, and we sort of found a way to take this criteria and match it up to those steps of, of creating a garden, which you'll sort of see in, in the video, and um, the Dig Toolkit is going to have a set of these activities for for teams to work through um, related to you know as they go through these steps of of the milestones. And the other piece that we're going to have is, which I'm really excited about, is a set of bra- best practice case studies. So we're going to talk to companies from all over the children's media landscape, and you know. These are companies that are striving and achieving diversity and inclusion um, with respect to, to these milestones. And that's really where um, you know we need your help. If you know of companies, or if you are a company that would make a great case study, send us an email, um, diversityinapps at gmail.com. We want to hear from you, um, and we're excited to really continue this great group, We uh, great work. We want to feature as many companies as we can. And um, you know, check out the video. I'm going to put it in uh, the show notes. and obviously we're going to be tweeting it out. We've tweeted out a couple times already. We've posted it on our Facebook. Um, check it out, send us a note, um, an email, tweet at us, whatever um, we want to hear from. You. With that, let's get to our first article. So the first article comes from Mashable. It's called the makers of Sesame Street are bringing quality education to refugee children, so the headline pretty much explains what the article's about. So Sesame Workshop is working with International Rescue Committee um, to really help reach uh, children living in displaced or resettled communities, um, and they're going to use mobile um, content, TV, printed material, etc. And um, the article is is. Uh, really fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, um, I was not really familiar with the International Rescue Committee, but it sounds like they do fantastic work and Sesame's really working with them because they know how to reach uh, this audience. Um, And it sounds really strange to use the word audience, but one of the things that I found surprising in the article was that children make up half of the 60 million displaced people across the world. So 30 million children are living in uh... refugee camps across the world and um, you know it, it talks about when young children are living in these sort of um, in in refugee camps obviously there's um, the consequences can be grave and then later in life they have health problems they have a harder time holding down to a job and um, just a harder time et cetera uh, learning and achieving in school So, um, the other piece that I, I really liked about it was they made it very clear that they are adapting both the content and really their strategy, depending on, um, who they're trying to reach, where they're trying to reach them. And the reason that I, I like this was because it, it shows there's clear intent to, um, to do good work. They're not just sort of slapping something together and, and pushing it across, um, you know, where wherever they are in the world. And so that means that at times they might be going into these makeshift classrooms that exist in refugee camps, and sometimes they're going outside of the classrooms, and sometimes they're going through social workers, and sometimes they're going through parents. Um, that's a smart approach to this. Um, one of the things they talked about, and we had put in a newsletter um, a couple of weeks ago, was um, you know, uh, Sesame Street had created the first uh, Afghani puppet and so this was to uh... you know appeal to that particular audience um, with with the puppet and the article says that recent research shows that fathers in afghanistan changed their minds about sending their daughters to school after watching the local language version of sesame street which it says what the local name is um, i'm not even gonna try to pronounce it but um, it's it's in there in the article that that's um that's amazing um and and really um great to hear and so what what this talks about um is sort of there's four things that trying to reach an audience in displaced uh communities is really you you run into you know a lack of funding for education and emergencies country specific policy restrictions a lack of research and evidence on what types of programs work, and little measurement and transparency around education costs. So, you know, the third one there, evidence on which types of programs work. So they don't—they're not working with a lot of data here, which is again a huge reason that they need to be flexible and they need to adapt. And um, you know, they say that they aren't trying to to make this go very fast, and they're—they're they're kind of frustrated with the fact that. But they want to make an impact. They want to do it right. And so the plan is to to put up a, um, a pilot program within the next six, six to nine months, which is, is which is great news. And we'll be following this and sort of see how how it goes. Um, the second article this week is in Time magazine. Um, it's by Tim Baharin. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And it talks about the uh, the Maker Fair that happened. Um, last week in uh, at the San Mateo Event Center, um, obviously there are maker fairs all over um, the country. I'm sure New York has has plenty of them. This is sort of considered the granddaddy of them all. Um, One hundred and fifty thousand people are expe- were expected, um, and you know it's it's a place where if if you're familiar with maker fairs, childrens really get hands-on experience. So they're um, playing with electronic gadgets. They have um, you know, robotic kits. They're flying probably drones now, um, and they just—it's—it's it's sort of like tinkering. Um, they're learning how how these things um, come together, what it takes um, to program them, what it takes to build them, software, hardware, etc. Um, and the the big ones—Google, Google, Intel, Microsoft—they're all sponsors of this, um, and. The reason the article caught my eye was, one, one it was tweeted at us, and um, two, it talks about how um, with Maker fairs there's always a, a lack of minorities. And um, they talked about, in this particular one, LinkedIn, um, Roboterra, and ThinkLogix, these three companies, actually brought 4,000 students from underserved communities uh, to the show to see demos and play um, with the various projects, so um, what what the author says is is sort of the you know it's not necessarily that the, these companies weren't making an effort, but he he said that the tech community as a whole needs to work harder um, to get all genders um, and 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 races um, to really be focused on on STEM and because it's it's the future and um, I was a little disappointed that you know. He didn't really go into what those efforts could look like, or even talk about programs like you know, like Girls Who Code that um, that are trying to do something about that. So, um, you know, I, I understand it wasn't the point of the the piece overall, but it was a sort of a missed opportunity. And one of our goals at Dia is really to turn the website or the app or whatever it looks like is really be a place where parents, educators, anyone looking for information like this, like programs that are trying to do something about um, the STEM gap in uh, in the country, you know, wh- where can they go and find organizations either locally or nationally that are, are doing something about it? And um, it just it got me thinking on, on a need to compile this list and, and you know, be a source for parents or whoever maybe even folks in the media who are looking for this information but overall I thought it was a good piece about the continuation of of the maker movement and how it's really grown from a small grassroots movement to something mainstream and massive which is um you know super important for the country and and, and you know sounds like you know kids are are naturally gravitating towards it um so so check out those two pieces as well as the list of um, Spanish-related apps that we have in the newsletter this week. And we also have the the Lego piece, which I'm sure many of you have seen um, in The Atlantic this week. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you back here next week, hopefully with a great interview and guest.